Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 434. It is Thursday, May 13th, 2010, and we are going to talk today about the basic financial education we never get in school. You see, I think that there's some fundamental things that we should be teaching our children and our young adults, our college-age students, everything from about the freshman year of high school up should be, uh, there should be some level of uh, enlightening to these concepts that I'm going to give you today. Obviously, not all of them dumped on a ninth grader, but maybe the education should begin there and maybe conclude at the end of high school and then be expanded upon in college. So I'm not going to be talking about really high-end economic theories today or anything like that. It's not going to be a class lecture. If the economic shows are not your thing, I want you to hold on with me today. I want you to give me a chance today because some of the things I'm going to tell you today are some of the most empowering things that you can hear to understand the truth. And I'm going to work really hard to pull back and retract the input of my opinions on this stuff. I want to present it to you today solely as fact. I'm going to put some opinion in there. I can't not do that. That's who I am, right? We, we know that if we listen to this show, then we know that Jack is going to throw out opinions in this. But I'm going to try to minimize that as, as compared to usual shows today. Because I want you to be able to take this as a, as a factual assessment of all these terms that you hear thro- thrown around, what they actually mean, how money actually works, comes into existence, how it's, how it's loaned, uh, how all these things play off each other, what the money supply is, what inflation really is, to really know these things. And to know them in a simple, simple way. A way, and this is the most important part of this thing. Some of the stuff I'm going to be telling you today I've said before, I don't think I've ever put it all together in one show like this. And then the other part of this is that you may know all of these things. I want to try to help you today so you can explain them to other people so that they understand them in a way that is simple to understand and a little bit entertaining. Because the one thing I hear from a lot of people, how do I get people on board? How do I get people on board with preparation and survivalism and, and, and some level of active, some level of doing something out of apathy, out of being a sheep, out of being an ostrich? Money is one thing people will listen to you about if you know how to speak about it articulately. So even if you know everything I'm going to say today, hopefully I will help you explain it better. And as a last-ditch effort, you can refer people to the show. Before that, though, um, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, uh, as always, taking care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. One of my favorite sponsors of the day today is Backyard Food Production. Love Marjorie, love her setup down there, love what she's done. Um, if you want to look at a family that can actually live off their land, you look at their DVD and they'll show you how they've done it. Um, I don't think they 100% do live off their land, but they could if they had to. They really could. Uh, if, the, if the shit hit the fan, this is a group of people who, as long as they can defend what they have, and I think they're quite equipped to do that, I think could just go on like, you know, not really that much has changed. And uh, it's pretty amazing what they've done, the way they've set it up, the way they've created systems that are interdependent with each other, uh, the number of closed-loop systems on their, on their little farm that they've set up. And I really think that you would do yourself a service to purchase their DVD. Again, their DVD is like $24.95. I keep telling her it should be 30 bucks. I don't know why she won't raise the price, uh, but here's what I've heard from people who have bought it. It was a stretch to pay $24.95 for it, but after I bought it, I would have paid twice that for it. Because the insights that were given and the ideas that I have now. So great product. Please check that out. Next product of the day is uh, the Berkey Guy with Berkey Light Water Filtration Systems. Folks, there's one thing that when we have scientists looking into outer space and trying to find a planet with life on, there is one thing and only one thing that they look for. Water in liquid form. If there is liquid water, there can be life. And what does that tell us? Where there is no safe, usable liquid water for us, there will be no life. Water is the staff of life. It is the thing that you need to survive above all things. With Berkey light water filters, 
you'll be able to do that no matter what happens. You'll be able to take water and make it clean, and not only clean, but good tasting. Boiling will only take you so far. There's often things in our water that even if we boiled them, would still make the water taste bad. So, used in conjunction with other methods, you can basically make anything safe to drink with Berkey water filters. And if you have any questions about your filtration need, just call up the Berkey guy. He will give you personal service. That's one great thing about all our sponsors. They give that personal service. Also consider joining the Member Support Brigade today. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. A uh, bunch of great discounts. I'll leave it at that today. It's a good program. You support the show at 20 cents an episode. There's a link on the main website if you want to join the MSB. Last little thing I want to mention. I said this yesterday. The Soil Cube is now available to MSB members at a 20% discount. If you're a member, log in, go to the benefits page, check that out. I tried to email everybody. Uh, the system has a problem. My programmer's working at it as I record, so hopefully I'll be able to send out the announcement email today. The Soil Cube is awesome, guys. You really need to check it out. And with that, I am going, and I'll put a link in today's show notes for non-MSB members so you can check out uh, the Cube. And, you know, maybe you'll decide that since you get five bucks off it, that could go toward your MSB if you've been kicking that idea around. All right. With that, let's get into um, the main topic today. And again, what I want to really make sure that I drive home here, as I start out today, I said something right as I went into the interest segment that I want you to understand what I meant by it. I said, as a last-ditch effort, you could refer a friend to this show and let them listen to it. Let me explain it to them. Why is that a last-ditch effort? I mean, I ask you guys to share the show all the time. I want you to share the show. Because for this topic, if you can get informed, your friends will listen to you at least at first better than they'll listen to me. Uh, this is one of those things that, there's the old saying that a prophet has no honor in his own country. It comes from the Bible. I believe Jesus said that. And what he means is that the closer you are to people, the less likely they are to take your advice. Because you're just Joe, or you're just Tom, or you're just Susan, or you're just Tammy. What do you know? Money's different when you're not trying to tell people what to do with their money. It just explain things to them. The minute that you can say something to somebody about money that they hadn't thought of before that is evidently true. In other words, once they hear it, another, again, I'm not a biblical or religious guy, but I, I quote the truth where I see it. Know the truth and it shall set you free. Well, the thing about that statement is it's not just about knowing the truth, but it's about the truth being self-evident when it's heard, when it's articulated. So if I tell you something about money and you think about it, and you go, well, that must be true... Or you go, it sounds true, but I need to check this fact. And I go, check this fact. And the fact checks out. All of a sudden, this, this myopic view that I've had of economics and money expands. And the thing that happens that's intrinsic to human beings is as soon as what we've been told or what we've been conditioned to believe falls apart, especially with something that's as important to us as money, because it's how we keep a roof over our head, food on the table, keep the kids in school, all the stuff. This is the most important things in the world to us. Rotate around money and economics. So the minute that there's a chink in the armor, the, the general response with a lot of people in many subjects is to bury the head deeper. I don't want to know. With money, all of a sudden, it's a concern. And they start asking more questions, and then they open. And once you understand money, and you understand the economic troubles that this country has, it's very hard to not take a second step and start doing a bit of preparation. So if we're going to do this, again, I think this is an education you should have received as a high school student. So I'm going to do it at a high school level, not a college level, not a collegiate level, not, a, not an advanced degree level. I'm going to do this at a very basic level. And I want you to understand that this is information that your public education system should have given you, you were owed, and I'm giving it to you now. I want you to value it. I want you to understand that it's your right as a citizen to know these things. It's also part of your responsibility to know these things. If you're going to go out and participate, remember I always say this, wherever you have a right, somewhere attached to that right are concurrent responsibilities. There is a responsibility here to understand these things, at least at a basic level, so that when you're making a decision like whether to support or not support something, and what to do with your own money, that you've fulfill the responsibility that goes with that individual right so that you can make an informed decision about what you're doing for yourself. It doesn't matter whether you agree with me or not about the outcome. You do what you want with the outcome. The underlying concepts I'm going to give you today are factual and verifiable, and everything I will give you today is factual and verifiable. Let's start out with a basic question I don't think many people ever ask themselves. What is money? 
What is it? Defined by the dictionary, it would say something to the effect of, and I'm not reading it here, so I might not get it exactly right, any agreed upon, agreed upon means of exchange between parties. So, in a barter system, I might have a sack of uh, a biltong meat, right? Beef jerky, or biltong, or whatever. And you might have a great big sack of wheat to make flour out of. And we would talk to each other, and we would decide how much meat I would be willing to give you for how much uh, grain. And we would make a direct exchange. That's a barter. There's no money there. There's an underlying commodity, but that commodity doesn't have a unified means of exchange. In other words, there's no set price that it takes exactly five ounces of uh, dried beef to equal 30 pounds of uh, grain, let's say. That will change every time the barter happens. And there's very little way for if I don't need your grain for me to know how much meat to give you so I can use grain to buy something from somebody else in another barter situation. So I don't really need your grain, but it's what you have, and I have a surplus of meat, so I'll make the exchange, but what will I be able to get for the grain somewhere else? It creates a problem. The barter system is inherently limited because it relies upon when we meet us having items that we both wish to exchange at the same time or for me to have pre-knowledge of a place I can take your commodity and get something I actually do want for it. So into this came money. Money is a concept. It's actually not real. It's an assigned value. Money is a This is the non-dictionary definition, but it is the real definition. Money is a collective agreement among society about the value of something that can be used for a means of exchange. Whether that be gold or silver or currency, like a dollar, either a back currency or a fiat currency, which we'll get to in a second, we've all agreed that for a $5 bill, there's a certain relative amount of things we can purchase in our economy. So when you come to me with your, with your grain, I can say, you know what, I don't need grain. I will sell this beef to you for since it's dried beef, $20 a pound. And you say, I only want a half a pound. And I say, here's a half a pound, you give me $10. Now I can take that $10 of what we're calling money, it's not really money, and I can go somewhere else, and I know relatively what I can get for that $10. So money is a solution to the problem of mismatched barter. That's the reality of money. And it only exists because as a society, we have collectively agreed to a value upon it. That's it. Money is an idea. It is not real. So, to control this, what was introduced into society eons and eons ago, when money first reared its head, when people first started to create a means of exchange, tribal people would use things like beads and seashells. The problem with that is if you wanted more beads or seashells, you could just whip some up at home. You could go down to the beach and pick up some seashells. You could get some stones and put some holes in them. Whatever your tribe was using as a currency could be fabricated. At the tribal level, this didn't matter because you were going to spend so much time drilling a hole in a rock when you could be out actually living your life and doing your hunting and gathering. But as society evolved... Obviously, the ability for anybody to go out and set up shop and start creating a currency was a problem. So governments decided that they would create a currency. And the original currency is what's known as a backed currency or a direct currency. There's just two different concepts here. The original currency was gold and silver. Why would we choose gold and silver as a currency? Well, if you think about ancient times, it had a, a variety of reasons. One, they were shiny and people liked it. And they were made into a variety of things. So they had an industrial value. They had an ornamental value. They could be made into jewelry or they could be made into a fine chalice. Alright? So that's what, that was one thing that kind of led them toward, we'll make this into money. The other thing was you couldn't just walk down to the beach and pick gold up. You couldn't dig a little hole and start pulling silver out of it. It took some effort to come up with gold and silver. And they were identified as being precious due to the fact that they were finite. In other words, there wasn't an unlimited supply of gold. There wasn't an unlimited supply of silver. So collectively, based on scarcity, based on the fact that these metals were finite, 
human beings came to an agreement that they could also be determined what their purity was by someone that knew how to do that so that they, the, the currency could be valued as gold and silver. And the money as gold and silver could be valued. You could take it to a, a person if you had a discrepancy with who wanted to exchange it with you and they could look at it and based on certain fundamentals say this is, this is good gold, this is good silver, this is not uh, a counterfeit. There's not been lead, you know, squirted into the middle of this or something like that. So, with that in place, we had our first money. It was gold and silver. Real money. Something that was actually scalable globally. Right? Because up until this point, the seashells that one tribe was using, or the rocks or beads that another tribe was using, were not interchangeable. If you left that region and went somewhere else with your seashells and you wanted to buy, let's say, a finely made obsidian knife blade uh, from a trader in that city and you showed him seashells, he said, I don't care about those. But if you had gold or silver, they became a means of exchange. So barter and gold and silver existed together. And as an economy evolved, we started to realize things like carrying around a bunch of gold and silver is kind of a problem because it's heavy. It's also subject to risk and theft, and it would be easier to have things that are better concealed. So out came the first currencies. So <clears throat> that led to what's called a back currency. This is something that we don't talk about anymore because we don't have it anymore. We don't tell our children what a back currency is. A back currency could either be issued by a government or by a private bank. And what it basically did is it exchanged paper for the underlying commodity of gold or silver. And it could be based on anything that met the requirements. It was largely, almost always, based on gold and silver. But it could be something else. It could be another metal. For all we know, it could be a, a grain storage silo, where you had a piece of paper that said that, that you owned uh, 10,000 stores of grain. So that, it had, that had real market value. But the primary thing that was used was gold and silver because of the reasons that I already gave you. In any event, the important thing to understand for each denomination on the bill, there was an equal uh, accepted value of gold or silver behind it. The paper was actually a promise to give to the bearer gold and or silver to the value of the paper. That was a backed currency. It's something we had on and off throughout the United States history. There's been not just one central bank of the United States. There's been multiple where we've left that system. For example, when Andrew Jackson, Andrew Jackson became our seventh president, there was a central bank. The first thing he did was dismantle it and go back to a fully backed currency that was controlled by our government. The government held the gold and silver, issued the paper against it, and the government of the United States agreed to pay to the bearer a specific amount of gold or silver against the paper. This kept everything very simple and very easy. And economies grew based on production and output and population growth. They didn't grow based on financial arbitrary concepts. Because the only way to have more money was to bring more gold and or silver into reserve. So nations would trade gold and silver at a national level in much larger quantities than private entities. When that happened, eventually a nation's gold or silver supply would contract, and the money in the hands of a people would become more valuable because it would become more scarce. Now what would happen immediately, uh, almost immediately, is it would reverse the cycle where nations would be switch between being importer and exporter nations based on this cycle. And it created an equilibrium. There were some booms and busts within it, but there will always be that in society. We can see that having a Federal Reserve has not taken away the boom and bust cycle. We've had the same thing. So that was a back currency. It's an important thing to take away from that. All a back currency means is that there's an underlying commodity to the money. That leads us to the next question. Do we have a backed currency today? No, we have a fiat currency. Okay, what is a fiat currency? A fiat currency means there is no underlying commodity under the paper. If you take a one or a five or a twenty dollar bill out of your pocket right now and you look at it, on it you will see uh, the following uh, words. This note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. That is a decree um, by government, and in this case, actually by a private institution, as the Federal Reserve will get to in a minute. That decrees value to the paper. So what is the value based on? Nothing more than the decree, the statement. 
So the government has taken on the ability, in conjunction with this private entity called the Federal Reserve, to create money. When you hear somebody say create money out of thin air, we'll get into the mechanics of how that works in a second, but that is literally how it is created, by a statement. So what you have to understand is that every dollar, every five, every 20, every 50, every 100 in your pocket is not money as we originally defined it. It is currency, and more specifically, it is a fiat currency. And what that results in is a certificate for debt. By the time I'm done today, you'll understand intrinsically why the money in your pocket is actually debt. Which means if you have $1,000 in your pocket right now, you have certificates for debt that are greater than $1,000. In other words, if we put all the money together, we couldn't pay back the debt, the national debt, the public debt, the private debt, all of it. If we had all the debts and all the money in one place at one time, the debt would outweigh the money. Why? Because the money has interest owed against it. So paying off the national debt is a scam. It cannot happen under a fiat currency system. I want you to say, again, you've got to understand this. It is impossible to pay back the debt under our fiat currency system. It cannot be done. Our nation cannot be debt free. In the Federal Reserve's own words, if nobody owed anybody money in the United States, there would be no money left. It would all be gone. It would vanish. It would disappear. It would cease to exist because it is in itself based on debt. That is a fiat currency system. An entity able to create money by calling it money. That is all. So when you look at a one in a hundred dollar bill, the difference between the two is absolutely intangible. If I handed you a one in a hundred, they were both brand new bills, and you were blindfolded, you could never tell me the difference. Weight, size, shape, texture, feel, all is the same. It's a, it's a, what, a three by six inch piece of specific type of paper, printed with a specific type of ink. Right? So, the only thing that would make it different if it was a hard currency is the one dollar bill would be backed by a dollar's worth of silver or gold. The twenty or the hundred dollar bill would be backed by a hundred dollars of silver or gold. That's a real difference. I can exchange it for a real commodity that is fixed. It's not floated. Because fiat currencies float. In other words, a dollar will buy less gold today than it bought yesterday. A a fifty dollar bill will buy less silver today than it bought yesterday. As that fiat currency strengthens and weakens based on every other fiat currency in the world where a currency that's, that's attached as a hard currency to a commodity doesn't float. It's fixed. It stays worth $20 worth of gold, whatever that amount is. If gold is $20 an ounce, a $20 bill gets you an ounce. If gold is $1,000 an ounce, $1,000 gets you an ounce. So $100 gets you a tenth of an ounce. And it stays that way. Very important that you get that as we go forward. Again, I want to talk about why money exists real quick before we move on. It was designed so that people could exchange goods and services when they didn't have the exact goods and services that each wanted from the other. It also is highly misunderstood. Money exists to protect individuals. It is the only thing that separates us from tyranny, to have some form of currency. If we take away currency, what is the value of your labor? How do you assert ownership of your home? What prevents a king or a president or an emperor or a monarch or a prime minister from seizing your property other than money? Money is the way by which we assert value to our actions and we use that value to exchange for currency so that we can have the recognized uh, right to private property. That is what money is as a, as a second level. Without money, you cannot own a house, you cannot own land, you cannot own a car. Your skill that you've worked hard to develop can be no more valuable than the skill of someone who's worked at, not at all to develop it and is far less in value. The only way we create the incentive in society to make our abilities more valuable is through money. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money may be the root of all evil, but money in of itself is the great equalizer among members of society. It allows us to set up a society where effort can be rewarded. A barter system gets us halfway there. But money allows us 
to see value in people that don't have a direct output but have a legitimate contribution to society. Money allows the author to have status equal to the mechanic. Money is important. That's why it's important that you understand the things I'm teaching you today at the level I'm trying to teach them. It's not complicated. It's just a level that's never explained to you because, trust me, your government and your school system do not want you to know these things. Moving on from there. The next thing we need to understand about money, if we're to go forward and understand concepts like inflation and debt and fractional lending, is the money supply itself, the measurement of money in circulation. There is a, a, a factor called the M factor that tells us how much money is in circulation. And there are four types of M factors. Uh, they are M0 through uh, M, M3. And I did a whole show on this way back in the beginning, back in July 10th, 2008. I'm actually reading from my own show notes here to explain this to you. So I won't go too deep into the M supply, but you need to understand it intrinsically if you're going to get everything else I'm going to go into next. M0 uh, is the most liquid measurement of money, the supply. M0 is all the cash or assets that could be quickly converted into a currency. Remember what a currency is. It's the means of exchange, dollars, right? The measure is known as the, nar as, the, as the narrow money because it is the smallest measure of the money. In simple terms, M0 is the money that you walk around with when you spend cash at the store. right? It's, it's the money that's in the coin jar in your house because it's quickly convertible. All right? It's not the money in the banks. M0 is the floating money, the, the moving money, the moving currency, the dollars that flow every single day without necessarily the need to be tied to a bank. So again, that's the most narrow or least inclusive measure of money, M0. M1, M1 is M0 plus checking accounts. That's the easiest way I can make that out to be. It's the measurement that economists use to try to quantify the amount of money in circulation. So it's the real circulating money. Because how many times do you go to the grocery store and instead of pulling out cash, write a check or use a debit card or something like that? Right? How many times do you get a bill that instead of mailing in you know, a, a cash, you write a check and mail it in? So the money that's flowing that's attached to the banks at the most basic level, the consumer level, is M1. M2 is M1 plus small-time deposits. So that's all the money less than $100,000 in accounts. If you have $50,000 in a bank account, that's part of M2. If you have $150,000 in a bank account, that is not... M2. It gets deferred to M3, which we'll get to in a second. It's also non-institutional money market funds. What that means is a money market is generally a place that you hold cash, like a bank account. It usually pays a little bit higher interest rate uh, than a typical bank account, but it's most often used as a place to hold money in between stock trading. It's not the only thing a money market's used for. Please don't write in and, and go nuts on me about that. But in simplistic terms, most money market accounts are used to hold cash in between trading transactions. So I'll have a brokerage account with a money market in it. And when I buy a stock, I pull out of my money market. And when I sell the stock to collect profits, but I don't want to pull it out and move it in to buy a house or a car, I want to hold it there for my next trade, I switch it back into my money market account. Easiest way to think about it. So, non-institutional money market funds. So, if Exxon has a money market fund, and they do, that they use for things like trading commodities and other things, it is an institutional money market account. It's not included in M2. Here's an interesting thing. A few years ago, our federal government was reporting to us all of these numbers, including what I'm about to get to, M3. They were telling us this is how much money's in circulation. We could see the money grow. When I get to inflation, you'll understand why that's very, very important. A few years ago, they said, you know what? We're only going to report M2. We're not going to report M3 anymore. It'll save us lots of money because we have to calculate things in their spreadsheets. And, you know, we have to put out all this paperwork and everything. Well, rest assured, the Federal Reserve knows what the M3 number is. It's not hard to figure out. In fact, you can go to Shadow Stats and you can find out what the M3 growth rate is. What is M3, though? M3 is M M2 plus all large-scale deposits, all the deposits greater than $100,000, institutional money market funds. So that money market fund held by Exxon or Bear Stearns 
or what have you, that money market fund is part of M3. Short-term repurchase agreements. What is a short-term repurchase agreement? It is a scam uh, code word for loan to make a business look like it's not in debt. Short-term repurchase agreements work this way. We'll issue you stock, um, and you will buy it for $10 a share. We agree to buy it back after a certain period of time for $12 a share. Basically, you've loaned me money, right, at an interest rate of 20%. That doesn't look good on a balance sheet if it's debt. Okay? But now I've created money for my company by selling stock to you at its current price. But I've guaranteed you to purchase the stock back over a period of time. No matter what happens to its value, I'll buy it back at 12. It could go to 13, you could sell it openly. It could go to 5, and I still have to buy it back from you at 12. It's a loan. And there's no other way to see it. It's a loan. There's a lot of that that goes on. Not included in the M2 number that we're told about. Uh, the next one is, along with other larger liquid assets. So that basically means all the other money that's out there. Okay, So all the big money is in M3 and not in M2. And it is considered the broadest measure of money. It's used by economists to estimate the entire supply of money within the economy. Uh, it's also the money that's not in the United States right now. So the Canadian that's holding American dollars in Canada because he took some home with him. Uh, or the large uh, holdings of the British government, M3. They're holding dollars as a hedge against holding their own currency. All of that money's not in M3. As you can see, that would probably make up a great deal of the money supply. So why would your government stop telling you what the M3 is and only tell you what the M2 is? Because when somebody goes on to uh, you know, a news station and puts up a chart and you see the money growing exponentially, even the average ostrich goes, huh, that doesn't look right. That seems bad. Well, the M2 grows slower. Because all the money that eventually gets into the M2 generally starts out in the M3 in its creation stage and has to filter down. So there's a lag between the time that the money is created in the M3 supply and the time that it actually shows up in the M2. So the growth curve doesn't look as radical, so it presents better to the American people. Why does this all matter? Why is this, you know, this is probably the most technical piece of what I'm giving to you is this M uh, M factor of money. Why does the supply matter? Because the next question we have, and the most important question we're going to answer today, is what is inflation? Now, you probably, unless you've listened to this show and heard this before, have an idea of what inflation is, and you're probably wrong. Most people have been conditioned to believe the following. Inflation is the rising cost of goods and services. So that when I go out to buy a car tomorrow, and it costs more than buying a car did eight years ago, of an equivalent style of car, type of car, size of car, class of car, the price has gone up, right? Or if I bought a loaf of bread ten years ago and I buy a lo loaf of bread today, the bread today costs more. And that increased cost is inflation. That is not inflation. That is the result of inflation. And just say that again. That was not inflation. It's the result of inflation. And the subtle difference that our dumbed-down education system does not teach our people anymore, it hasn't for years, allows them to get away with the nonsense in this M-factor of money supply that I just explained to you. When you take something like a loaf of bread, and it has a certain size, shape, number of slices packed in a bag, produced by a certain person in a certain way. Ten years from now, everything about it is relatively the same. If anything, the cost should go down because te technology making it more efficient to produce that loaf of bread. But generally, the price goes up. Why? Because inflation is when the value of the money goes down, not when the price of goods and services go up. How, how is that more important? And why do we even care about that? Because... It's directly caused by the M-factor money supply. Tying the two together for you now. Let's say that we live in a society, a very, very small society, and there are only $100,000. Don't even worry about their U.S. dollars. We're just going to call them dollars because we're familiar with that term together. There's only $100,000 in the entire economy. All right? But there's only 
50 people. And that money flows between those 50 people. Sometimes one person has a lot of money, sometimes the person has a little money. But that money just kind of flows around in there, right? Things would be very um, expensive, comparatively speaking, to today because there's a finite amount of money. Uh, so actually be very inexpensive is what I meant to say. So one dollar in that society would buy you an awful lot, if that makes sense, because there's only so much money out there. So if one or two people in the society are relatively wealthy and are holding half of the money and there's only other half of the money to flow around, then the dollar that we're calling it gets very, very strong. Okay, Because there's a limited quantity. Gold is worth more than silver, at least theoretically, because there's less gold than silver available. That's actually not true, and it's one of the great scams on society, but we won't go there today. But diamonds are worth more than quartz. Because there's less diamonds than quartz in the world, right? So the more scarce something is, the greater its value. So since money is relatively scarce, each individual piece of money buys more. If we then say there's not enough money here, and without increasing the population by very much, dump in a second hundred thousand dollars, all of a sudden there's more money. Now you would think everybody would be better off, okay? But if the wealthy portion of society pulls another half of that out to themselves, all we've done is doubled the, the underlying circulation rate or about half the money or 100000 for 50000 So since people now have to work just as hard or close to as hard to earn the same money, the value of their money has gone down. Further, even if their wages rise, if everybody gets a double, uh, double wage over what they were getting and now making twice as much money, very shortly after that additional money goes into circulation, it buys half of what it used to. It's like a stock. Let's say you're holding Jack Spirico stock. I issue stock at $10 a share. And the price of my stock over a few years goes up to $50 a share. And I notice that investors aren't buying my stock at $50 a share anymore. What I can do is what's called a split. Which means I say, if you're holding 1,000 shares... Now you're holding 2,000 shares. But I drop the value to $25. Very simple mathematics makes perfect sense. And now you're holding 2,000 shares at $25, and you have the same amount of value in the stock. As the stock begins to go back up, you actually now benefit further because you have more shares in the company, and you have more shares than Jack Spirico. In stocks, there's also something called the reverse split, and it's what companies do when they're going broke to try to artificially inflate the rate of their stock. AIG did this. AIG was trading at like a dollar something a share, and they did, it was either a 7 or 8 to 1 reverse split, where they basically said, if you're holding 100 shares, now you're holding, let's say, a 10 to 1 reverse split to make the numbers round. Now you're only holding 10 shares. But the value went way up. But the total value of what you're holding stayed the same. Okay? Very simple. So if we had 10 shares... At a dollar a share, they become one share worth $10 a share. And then the market decides whether or not that company's done right, and that price goes up or down from there. Again, very, very simple, easy to understand, obeys the law of mathematics. Money obeys the same law. It has to. But you don't get more shares. So what we do is we do a forward stock split where we double the number of shares, we double the amount of money, Right, But you don't necessarily get the money. And nothing backs it coming in. So all that happens is that money begins to circulate. The new money can only get value from one place. It sucks it from its brothers and sisters. So effectively, the, if the dollar was worth a dollar in our little closed society, when I double the amount of money, the dollar becomes worth 50 cents. That's what inflation is. It's the value of your money going down, not the cost of goods and services going up. Very important that you understand that, and something we should be teaching people in school. The next thing we need to understand before we can get into how debt creates money is what is debt. At a most basic level, debt is a statement saying that you owe somebody who lent you something. Very, very simple to understand. You loan me $100. And we agree on a simple interest rate of 5% over one year, which means I have one year to pay you $105 back. You've made a profit. I've paid against it. That is debt. Right? But that is not how debt works in our society. 
debt actually becomes money in our society. And I'm going to explain that to you next, but I want you to ponder it for a second. Debt is money. Debt not only is money, debt creates money. But at the same time, debt creates new money. It burdens money. It puts uh, uh, additional debt on the money when it creates it. So the money can never be paid back. We'll get into that here in just a second. First, we have to talk about, though, can a currency be debt? Well, it can. In fact, every currency in existence in the world today, to my knowledge, is a fiat currency. I don't know of any currencies in existence that are 100% backed by gold or silver or any other commodity. They're all issued by decree and they float against other world currencies with our dollar being the global standard for now that everybody else's currency kind of floats and measures against. It doesn't mean we're the strongest one, but we're the standard by which other currencies are measured. So if we look at the dollar versus the British pound, the British pound is a stronger currency. If we look at the dollar versus uh, the Japanese yen, the dollar is, uh, is a stronger currency. So in one instance, the dollar is stronger. In the other instance, it's weaker. But the pound and the yen are strong and weak against each other relative to the dollar. That's how everything is done in global transactions for now. That's why a lot of countries are really pissed off at the United States and the way we've handled our debt and our books because we've made it bad for them because even if they're not directly tied to our dollar, they are eventually when they look at their relative strength against other currencies. Okay, Pretty simple to understand. So if we want to know how currency can be a debt, we have to understand how U.S. dollars are created in the first place. There's two ways that dollars are created. They are created first by the Federal Reserve when they're put into circulation. I'll explain that first. And then they're created inside the economy through bank lending, which I'll also explain today. Starting out with how money is created. Let's say the Congress needs some money and they don't have enough money because they haven't taxed you and I enough or we've run out of money to give them. I know that's a stretch, but it happens all the time. And the Congress spends more than it takes in. That is our national debt. So the way it gets money is it phones up the Treasury and it says, Treasury, we need money. You're supposed to give it to us. The U.S. Treasury says, well, we only have like two weeks worth of cash on hand. We need to raise some money for you. How much would you like? And the Congress says, oh, $50 billion. The Treasury goes out and sells $50 billion worth of bonds. Selling a bond, basically, our U.S. Treasury, which is part of the government, says to the world at large, whether it be a $50 bond for your kid that you're going to save for their college and give it to them in their birthday card, or a major bond purchase from a bank or a very wealthy individual or a private government, we have $50 billion worth of bonds for sale right now. And the people that are asked to spend the $50 billion, where it's $50 or $100 million being spent, say, fine, we'll give you money. What do we get in return? That's the interest on the bond. So the government says, well, we're paying interest on these bonds of 5% or 2% or 3 or 1 or 11 It doesn't matter. There's an interest rate. So the person purchasing the bond says, I can live with that. They purchase the bond. The interest rate is applied. And when the bond reaches maturity, the person can cash it in or the institution can cash it in, get their money back plus the interest. Very simple, very easy to understand. This is where it starts to get cloudy. The, the Congress then gets that money from the Treasury so it can be spent into our economy. But at this point, no money has been created. Let me say that again. At this point, there has been no new money created. To buy the bond, somebody else had to have existing money and put it back into the pool. So all that's happened here is money is circulated. But let's say that the money starts to run out. We need more money in this fiat system, which, as you'll understand by the end of today's show, we always have to have growth in the money supply because we always have to have growth in the debt. And if we have growth in the debt, we have to have growth in the money. Sounds twisted. You'll get it at the end. But just for right now, except we need more money. So what does the Federal Reserve do, which is actually the creator of the money? And again, the Federal Reserve is a private corporation made up of the largest banks in the world. It is not run or controlled by the government. There are ways that the government exercises some control, but the decisions are made by private people. And when the government tries to exercise any control, the Federal Reserve stands behind that and says, you can come to here and no further. And they set that line wherever they want it to be. And the government can do things like fire the chairman, appoint different employees, but when it really comes down to it, the inner workings are secret from the people and from the Congress. So this secret entity decides we need more money. So what it does 
is it goes to the foreign government, it goes to the institution, right? It goes to the individual, and it buys the bond back. All right? Federal Reserve buys the bond. Maybe you're cashing your bond in early. You're forfeit, forfeiting some of the interest, but you want your money. It's, it can be cashed in. Maybe it's reached maturity. It doesn't matter. At some point, the Fed decides we're going to buy up a certain amount of this debt. We're going to buy these bonds. This is where the magic happens. This is where the money creation happens. When the Federal Reserve buys the debt, it doesn't actually do it with money. It enters it as money in a computer... And the, the other organization, the, the, the financial organization, the government, the large investor receives money, but that money is created out of thin air. If that sounds impossible, I'm going to read something to you. This is from a pamphlet from the Federal Reserve's Boston branch. I'm going to read it to you exactly as it's printed in this pamphlet. It was made back in the 80s, and it's called Putting It Simply, and it is simply. It's from 1984, and again, it's from the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. Here's what it says. When you or I write a check, there must be sufficient funds in our account to cover the check. But when the Federal Reserve writes a check, there is no bank deposit on which the check is drawn. When the Federal Reserve writes a check, it is creating money. So, there was no new money. The Fed stepped in and pulled the bonds into a different pot and created that money out of thin air. And now the money supply has gone up. Earlier we talked about M0 through M3. When they initially do that, where does the money go? Large financial institutions and governments. What are they part of? M0, 1, 2, or 3? Obviously, M3. So the money supply grows and gets bigger, so it causes inflation, which is the devaluing of the other money, but we don't see it on a graph until it trickles down from the M3 into the M2, which can take a very long time depending on how that money is used. So that's money creation method number one. Hopefully that's understood. It's only complicated because it doesn't have any common sense behind it. It doesn't rational. If you're struggling with this right now, it's not because it's complicated. It's because it doesn't make sense to you because it's stupid. All right? There's my opinion coming in where I'm trying to keep it out. It's stupid to be able to create money out of thin air. So since it's stupid, your brain repels it, right? It says this this can't be, but it is. Again, making it as, put names on it. Joe buys a bond from the treasury for $1,000. Joe is a bank. The bank then sells the bond to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve enters $1,000 of value into Joe, the bank. It takes the bond and holds it which is interest that the Treasury now owes the Federal Reserve. But it made the money by keystroking $1,000 enter. It printed money out of thin air. That's what people are talking about when they say this. So, the Federal Reserve is now owed money by our government in the tune of 4 or 5%, right? For money, it didn't lend, it created. Nice scam, huh? But it's not just the Federal Reserve that creates money. There's also a second system called fractional reserve. And fractional reserve allows the banks, your local bank down the street creates money every day out of thin air as well. This is also hard to understand, but not because it's complicated, only because it doesn't make sense, because it sounds like it should be illegal. And my opinion coming back in, it probably should be illegal. Okay, let's stick with the Bank of Joe and the $1,000, right? We just saw $1,000 created out of thin air. Joe lent the government $1,000, right? Sold the debt to the United States uh, Federal Reserve, got his $1,000 back. The money was created out of thin air. The, the, the original $1,000 is still with the Treasury being spent somewhere else in the economy. It's floating around. It's being paid to you in a tax refund. Um, it's being spent to fix a pothole on the street somewhere. It's, it's, doing, it's buying a missile system. It's doing something. The $1,000 that Joe has right now is new money created by an edict, created by a decree, fiat currency. Joe now is holding $1,000. Banks do not make money by holding it. They make money by lending it. 
So in walks Tom into Joe's bank, and Tom says, I'd like to borrow $900. Joe is holding 1000 Again, these numbers would be much larger. I'm making it as simple for you as I can with small numbers. Joe cannot loan $1,000 out of his bank. He can only loan 90% of what he's holding. So for that one little pocket, that $1,000 is covering a $900 loan. So he gives Tom $900. Tom goes out, buys a car, buys a little old scrap junker car for $900. He now owes Joe the bank $900. But the guy that sold the car is Frank. Frank gets $900 in cash. He happens to use the same bank. He takes that $900 back to the bank, and what does he do with it? He deposits it. It becomes a new deposit. Joe says, now I don't have, get this, $1,000. I have $1,900. I've only loaned out $900. Now I have more money to loan. So he can loan 90% of the new $900. Right? He does that again. That $900 was also created out of thin air. It was keyed into a computer, and it was loaned into existence. And that can go over and over and over. As many times as the money comes back to the bank, it can be relent and come back and be relent. And it's not done at $1,000. It's done at millions and hundreds of millions and billions of dollars that this is done with. And every time a bank issues a mortgage, it creates money out of thin air. And every time somebody sells a house, buys a new house, it deposits the profit, it creates more money out of thin air. Over, and it all works great. Until somewhere in the chain, people start to default on their loans. And when that happens, it's one of the things that can trigger that drastic and dreaded bank failure. It's only one component of a bank failure, though. See, this is the important part to understand. When the bank creates money with fractional reserve banking, they only create new principal, they don't create new interest. Making this as simple as I can, you go to the bank and you ask for $10,000. They loan it to you. It's not real money. It's been loaned into existence. It's been created out of thin air. And it really has. If you're struggling with that for the, for the end of this uh, show, just accept it for now. You owe the bank $10,000 plus interest. Okay? That's pretty easy to understand. Let's say by the time you make all your payments, you're going to end up paying the bank back $12,500 based on the interest rate and the term or the length of the loan. All right? So the bank's created $10,000. But they've created debt that equals twelve five. Where does the $2,500 come from? It has to be created with another loan, either from the same bank you borrowed it from or from another bank entirely. But there has to be a new loan to create an additional $2,500 or there's no $2,500 for you to get to pay your loan back with. Now you can say, well, I have a job and I earn a certain amount of money, but that money only gets to you after it goes through all these layers. It has to start way up at the top where it doesn't even exist, and the Federal Reserve creates it by saying it exists. and has to filter through all those different levels of the money supply to eventually get to you. So if we stop the creation of new money, and we hold inflation at zero so that the value of money doesn't go down, what we have is a situation where eventually the debt pulls too hard against the money supply, and the money dries up and goes away. There's not, that $2,500 never is created in, in that scenario. And there's a lot of things that can happen to an economy that can cause that to happen. But the trump card is the Federal Reserve can always buy more of its own debt back. It can always monetize the debt. It can always create new debt. But what happens when that occurs? It's exactly what happened with Germany during the Weimar Republic, where you get to a point where a wheelbarrow of money will only buy one sack of potatoes. Or you get to what Zimbabwe has today, where you have a $500 million Zimbabwe note to buy a can of Coke. That system is exponential by its nature. Every time new money is created, it creates new debt. Since it, it, Okay, think about it this way. The financial advisor that I'm always beating up on, We'll sit down with you and show you how your retirement savings will grow over 40 years. You're 20, and you're going to contribute until you're 60. And he'll show you that money growing very, very slowly, very slowly, and you hit about 50. And at 50, real exponential growth starts to kick in. If you're in a, a, a plan where every five years your money doubles, 
over that next 10 years, it doubles twice. And you go from holding a few hundred thousand dollars to retiring a millionaire. And if you'll hold off on retirement until 70, it doubles and it doubles and it doubles, and all of a sudden it's worth five or six million dollars. That's the exponential curve. And if you look at the amount of money in a simple line graph, you'll see it go very, very slowly and linearly over time, and then toward the end it starts the hockey stick. And once it starts the hockey stick, it starts to run away. If you could live to be 150, you'd be a billionaire. You just have to let it sit there. That's the illusion that they paint. It ain't going to happen for you. But there is a mathematical certainty there. It's simply interest compounding back into principal and earning more interest. That's how our money supply works. It's the same thing. That's why the hockey stick happens right at the end of an economy before it implodes. Because it has to. We've created a system where every time we create money, we have to create more money to cover the debt created by creating the money. That sounds ridiculous. It sounds like doublespeak. It sounds like I'm going in a circle. I'm not going in a circle. That's how the system works. The system is circular. And all that happens is that circle just expands and expands and expands and expands. And if you look at the U.S. national debt, and you look at it from 1913 to today, you see it just every year the curve gets greater. That debt is not just money we've borrowed. It's actually the money that we've created. And we've put ourselves into a situation where the only thing we can do is create more money. So there you have it. You might have to listen to this show two or three times to grasp these things. And when you grasp them, you'll realize you should have understood it the first time. That I've made it as simple as it can possibly be. That the system itself is not complex. It defies reason. The mind is repelled by that which does not make sense. If I show you a small circular hole and a large square peg, and I tell you that peg can go through that hole, you don't even think about it. You just go, no, because it defies logic. The fact that money can be created by a decree, by a statement, is counterfeiting. You know this is illegal. You know you can't set up a machine in your basement printing Federal Reserve notes and go out and spend them, and if you do, eventually they will catch you and put you in a very dark place where you won't like to be, where maybe you'll be part of a barter system, where if you're not a big tough guy, you might be traded for some cigarettes. Right? You understand this. So the fact that the people running your nation do it at will repels your mind. The fact that a bank can loan money that doesn't exist and create money by doing it really repels the mind. But again, these things are all 100% verifiable. Anybody that's a skeptic today, I defy you to show to me in print well-documented, where anything I've said today is not true. The opinion, take it out. Okay, so I say it's bad, you want to show me an opinion that says it's good, that's a difference of opinion. But when I told you how money was created, when I told you what money was, when I told you the history of money, when I told you why it exists, when I told you that as money is created, new interest is applied to the debt, and there's never enough money to pay the debt, any of those things I defy anybody to tell me are not true and prove it. Because I would use the documentation from the Federal Reserve itself, the people that do this, to prove to you everything I've told you, because this is not a conspiracy. This is not hidden. This is nothing approaching conspiracy, because it's in documentation they provide to explain it to anybody that wants to know. All they tell you is it's great. That's the only difference between my message and their message. They say it's wonderful. This is how we control things. It doesn't matter if there's inflation as long as wages come up with it. What's the problem? It doesn't matter if the value of money goes down as long as you have more. Why do you care if a, if a loaf of bread costs $100, right? If you had to work for 15 minutes to earn enough money to buy a loaf of bread 50 years ago, and today you can work for 15 minutes and earn $100 because it's run away with inflation and still buy a loaf of bread for the same amount of input of labor, if, this, if, if, a, if an equal-priced good it's also $100, why do you care? That was Ben Bernanke's answer to Ron Paul in front of Congress when he was asked a simple question. Can you guarantee the money to our Social Security recipients? And he said, sure we can. He said, can you guarantee the value of the money? And he said, of course we cannot. And then he came in with that second part. This is what money is. This is how money exists. This is how it's made, made, uh, made and created. That's what inflation really is. That's what the money supply really is. Now, again, I'm not trying to be political here. 
If you think this is great, fine, but please, by God, understand it. Grasp it. Don't just trust that it's all okay. Don't just trust. See, the problem is that we have been conditioned by society to trust that the politicians and the, 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 the corporations and the banks and everybody is smarter than us. That these things are beyond our ability to grasp. That, that we just have to trust them because obviously they're smarter than us and we should trust smart people. They're not smarter than us. They may be able to uh, make the simple seem complex. They may be able to orchestrate a system that's so simple that it's hard for you to grasp. But they're not smarter than you. They're human beings just like you. They have a brain between their ears, and they put their pants on one leg at a time in the morning. They might put on a more expensive pair of pants, but it's still a pair of pants. None of these things are beyond your grasp. None of these things are beyond your reach. And as detached as they might seem to you right now, if you're into this show more for the practical preparations and all, if you understand these things... It will empower you and change the way you think about preparedness. It will change the way you think about things like having gold and silver as part of your portfolio. It will empower you and change the way you view politics. All of a sudden, you'll start to realize that everybody's lying to you, not just the other side of the aisle. That if you're a Republican, it's not just the Democrats lying. And if you're a Democrat, it's not just the Republicans lying. They're all lying. Because when they tell you they can fix things... You know that with this underlying system, it cannot be done. When they tell you, look at the debt, we'll bring the debt down, you know they can't. It's impossible. They're lying or they're stupid. You choose which one. It's up to you. And because you start to realize that these people don't control your life, that's where it comes back into center. And you start realizing, since I know the truth, I can make decisions based on the truth for myself, and I'm in control of my life. That doesn't mean I'm going to be a complete atheist to politics. That doesn't mean I'm not going to occasionally pick up the phone and yell at my congressional clown or my senator. You know? doesn't mean it's not going to happen. But it does mean that at the end of the day, I'm going to make the decision based on truth and reality for myself. And I'm going to accept the fact that this great monstrosity of a United States of economy that we've been told can never completely fail, absolutely can, and someday most certainly will. Whether or not we'll live to see it, I don't know. But it is inevitable. It is inevitable because the law of mathematics is finite. And it is real. Actually, it's infinite. But it's real. It is, it is pure. One and one equal two, period. Two times two equal four, period. Two times ten equals twenty. These things cannot change. And if we keep compounding math on top of math, eventually we get an exponential curve. It happens all the time. It's a very simple thing to understand. Again, when your investment advisor or investment liar, as I like to call them, sat down with you and explained to you how cash value insurance or retirement account compounded heavily at the end of its cycle, and that's where the real money was made, he was showing you the same thing that's going to affect the debt of this nation or any other nation that practices this type of system, which is every other modern nation in the world today. It's important to understand. I know it's not always a cup of tea of the, of the audience, but I do what I can to make sure that I bring you everything you need to be well prepared for the future. If you cannot ensure your financial security, it's very hard to ensure your basic security. Because remember what we said about money why it existed. And this is what I'm going to close down with today. You can ignore all of this economic theory at your own peril, but you better understand economics because if the economy crashes, a new economy will have to be born. Money exists so that people can do business with each other. And people will always do business with each other and you will never be able to provide yourself 100% of what you need for existence and chosen comfort level. There will always be a need for a means of exchange. The only thing that separates us as a society from being a society of servants and being a society of individuals is money. Without money, all you have is pure slavery. Money may have been used and debt may have been used to enslave society, but it still offers some autonomy because it allows for the purchase of private property. If we go through the end of the world as we know it, the shit has hit the fan, the real crash of the economy, either due to the economy's inherent weakness or some 
conglomeration of natural disasters that precipitate and attack the weakness, one way or another, on the other side, there'll be a new type of economy. It will follow the same rules. And if you live through that change, you better understand those rules, or it will be very, very difficult for you to adapt to the change as it comes your way. The good news is, these things are remarkably simple. You have the information you need now to know the truth from fiction, and it's up to you what to do with it. I suggest that you make it part, not something you focus on every day, but you make it part of your underlying drive and, uh, drive and psyche, so that when you're making a decision about what to do next in your life, it's grounded with the reality of the illusions around you. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.